I promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. I'm a wonderful person. The Holy Gospel for this fifth Sunday after Trinity comes from St. Luke, the fifth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Glory to you, O Lord. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, and so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's verse 13 of 1 Kings 19. And that's actually a very good question, isn't it? It's a question God brings, not because he's out of the loop, not because he doesn't know what's going on, that he needs to be clued in on what's happening. Not that he hasn't been keeping up on Elijah's Instagram, so he has to know. So what's going on in your life, Elijah? No, it's God coming to his prophet, this troubled preacher, and asking him, why are you up on this mountain? What's going on? Why are you hiding? Talk to me. Uh, When God asks us questions, which he does all the time, they're not for his benefit, they're for yours. When you go home and read the word this week, which you should, there's a reason why I work on those Grace at Home bulletins every week. You know, something for you to take home and actually do. It's got cool puzzles and stuff on it. Anyways, come on. And you color the front and everything. But it gives readings for each day that usually tie in sometimes rather closely to what we've heard on, on Sunday. But it gives you an opportunity to open the word at home. And oftentimes God comes to you with questions. Or when you have a preacher come to you like myself or maybe just some random person that you're having a spiritual conversation with. They're a preacher. Maybe God is asking you questions. Or when you pray, has God ever asked you questions? Here God is asking a question, but it's in those moments that God asks us questions and he asks Elijah a question with the hope that Elijah will do exactly what it is that he does. He confesses. He brings a confession. Uh, Sometimes it's a confession of sin. 
which we just did, uh, this confession of, of wrongdoing that troubles our conscience. And, and we do that in part because we want our sin to be real. We want to name it. If it's an actual real thing, then it's something that Jesus takes away. If it's an imaginary thing, if it just kind of maybe exists but not really, do we need a real Jesus to take it away? But if we give it a name, then it can be stolen from us. Because otherwise, it sits there and we either cling to it because we think it defines us, which it doesn't, Jesus does, or it clings to us to try and drive us to despair. And so God looks to us for confessions sometimes when he asks questions. But it also can be a confession of our fears, our, our, our fears of the unknown, our fears of not being God. Not being able to tell what the future might hold. And, and so there's, there's a necessity maybe for us to actually not let our pride get in the way and, and confess, confess our fears. Or maybe just confessing that we're human. That we are grass that fades. That we are not as awesome as our grandkids think we are. Right? Well, this is the second time God has brought this question to Elijah. He brings it to him the first time in verse 9 as well. What are you doing here, Elijah? And it's a question of faith. God coming to his prophet to ask him, why have you forgotten who you are? And why have you forgotten what I've done through you and for you? You see, Elijah was a walking sermon. He was. His name is made up of two words that we use for God in the Old Testament, El and Yah, Eliyahu. His name quite literally means God is the Lord or the Lord is God. So anytime anybody says Elijah, they're doing a little sermon. The Lord is God. That's the goal for when I get up here. Might be some other things, but my goal is that when we get done on Sundays, your confession is the Lord is God. It's the goal of leading youth group. It's the goal of our, our, our Limbo Young Adults Bible study. It's the goal of Bible studies that you're a part of. It's the goal of any spiritual conversation you have with anybody. The, the, the movement is towards confessing basically the name of Elijah. The Lord is God. And so here we have Elijah being this walking sermon, this little tiny walking sermon, and he's actually called to minister to people who have left Yahweh. They've left the Lord behind. They've abandoned him to serve a different God, a little L Lord, that is Baal or Baal. Some of you have heard this name before, correct? Nod, yes. In Sunday school, a long time ago when I heard the stories, yes, Baal. Um, it's all over the Old Testament. Uh, Baal was the fertility God of Canaan. Not just procreation, but creation. He was the weather god. He was the one who sent rain. He's the Thor of Canaan, although I don't think they're going to make like a MCU Phase 5 movie for him. But he, he was the one that everyone thought was responsible for the good harvest. So there's a reason why, for instance, the first time we hear about Elijah is he shows up and he says, oh, by the way, it's not going to rain until I say. And it doesn't rain for three and a half years. Why? So that God can speak through Elijah and say, I'm the Lord. Baal's nothing. Come on, Baal, let's see what you can do in this. And Baal can't do anything. And then the next, next thing we see of him, right, is he does the game on Mount Carmel, right? You know this story. Come on. Felt bored Jesus. Mount Carmel. Elijah, right? 
Just please, can you nod and pretend that? Okay. Just want to make sure that you're listening. I know it's hot in here, but goes up to Mount Carmel, and you engineers and scientists, you'll love this. Okay. He does the right thing. He says, "Okay, Ahab, bring all your prophets of Baal, all 300 plus of them, and there's just going to be little me. But what we're going to do is, you build an altar, I'll build an altar. You get some wood, I'll get some wood." You get an oxen, I get an oxen, and we're going to do exactly the same experiment. The only thing is, you can't bring any fire to the party. Now, you pray to your God, and I'm going to pray to mine. Whichever one sends fire from heaven and devours our sacrifice, that's the Lord. Okay, deal? Deal. And they shake on it. So they go up to Mount Carmel. And, and the prophets of Baal, they, they, build their, they build their altar, and they've got the stones and, and all this stuff, put the wood on there, put the oxen on there, and they start dancing around, playing music, chanting, singing, even cutting themselves, crying out to Baal for hours and hours and hours. And then Elijah puts on the stand-up comedian hat. We're talking Jim Gaffigan of the Old Testament. Because our translations actually try to clean this up a little bit. It's not very clean. You know, he, he shows up and he goes, well, hey! Talk louder. Maybe Baal forgot his hearing aids. Talk louder. This is what it actually says in the Hebrew. He's probably in the bathroom. He took his phone in there and he hasn't left for hours. Or maybe he's on vacation. He's on a Disney cruise with Donald and Goofy with a Hawaiian shirt doing shuffleboard. There's these jokes in the Old Testament. That's why I love the Bible. But he's sitting here mocking them. Then finally he says, okay, enough's enough. My turn. So he actually repairs the altar of the Lord that was already there at Mount Carmel. Cuts up the ox, and he places the wood on there, and he, he, he places the oxen on there, and he actually digs a trench around the altar. And then he asks for water, which is a big ask in the middle of a drought, right? I think Gov- Governor Newsom would have something to say about that. And he brings buckets, and he pours it on there three times. Just He's soaking the, the, the sacrifice and the wood and the stones, and it fills this trench that he digs around it and all these things. And then he prays. He just says, remember me, O Lord, and listen to my voice. Let it be known that you are God in Israel. And then what happens, church? Fire, right? And it takes everything. It takes the oxen, the wood, the stones, the water. And of course, everyone there starts crying out, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, because I would do the same thing if fire came from heaven right now and like burned up our altar. (laughs) God's the Lord, yes, okay, Jesus, that's all scary. Um, They start crying out. And then just to put the last nail in the coffin of Baal, Elijah prays, and it rains, to be able to say, the Lord is God. But King Ahab of Israel was there. He witnessed the whole thing. You have to remember, if you remember your, your Bible history, that the kingdom has split in two, and you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah, and, and King Ahab is not a very nice guy, um, but what's worse is he's married to even a worse person, Jezebel. When I say Jezebel this morning, you need to boo, okay? It's like vodka, okay? Jezebel. Thank you. Um, he goes to his wife, Jezebel, Thank you. and, and he tells her what happened. About everything that happened, because the other thing that Elijah does is he brings all the prophets of Baal and he kills them, all of them, every single one of them. And I know many of you here sitting here tonight probably take issue with some of the violence in the Old Testament, especially in the conquest of Canaan and and the violence here of these killing of the prophets of Baal. Well, just to let you know, Baal worship involved, uh, for instance, prostitutes, both male and female, 
gross promiscuity, but even worse, child sacrifice. They've dug up where Canaanite worship centers have been before, and they found jars and jars and jars of bones of children. I read once that if you were to build a new house in the land of Canaan, you would sacrifice a child and bury them in the wall as a peace offering to Baal that he might bless that house. So uh, when God sends the Israelites as judgment, I don't necessarily know if we need to shed a tear. But anyways, Jezebel is not very happy with Elijah. She sends him word and says, I'm going to kill you just like you killed my prophets. And so Elijah runs, and that's where we find him this morning. He's one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. He's considered the second greatest prophet only to Moses in the Old Testament. He shows up at our Lord's transfiguration, right? You should know that story. It happens every year, right? Moses and Elijah there on the mountain with Jesus. He's also one of only two that we have record of in the Bible who never died, but were assumed into heaven. He's a superhero of the faith. He should have a Marvel movie made after him, right? And now he stands on this mountain trembling. He's afraid. He's frustrated because things have not gone the way he thought they were going to go in his faithfulness, in his work. He sees himself as a failure. And in some ways, he's become faithless at this very moment. He's looking to God saying, where's the revival, God? Did that whole thing on Mount Carmel. People were shouting, the Lord is God, and nothing. Nothing is happening but suffering and evil. Where's the victory? Where's the success, God? This is Elijah. This is the Lord is God man, named for a reason. He's the preacher and the healer and the miracle worker, and he finds himself feeling alone, afraid, unable to deal with life and the difficulties presented to someone who God has called into service. How can we ever assume that it will go better for us? Oh, it's got to go better for me than Elijah, right? How can we ever assume that we're not going to find ourselves in the same place? Afraid, fearful, Questioning, doubting. Elijah slaved for years, and he did amazing feats, and he saw no fruit, at least none of his own doing. God has to let him know, oh, by the way, I've kept 7,000 who have not pledged themselves to Baal for me. You didn't do that, Elijah. I did that. It goes the same with Jeremiah, if you've ever read the story of Jeremiah or Amos, or Ezekiel, even for our beloved Savior Jesus. If you've read John 6, he gets done preaching. He says, if, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life within you. And everybody leaves except for the 12. None of these men would pastor a megachurch. We wouldn't invite these men to our conferences. They wouldn't be on Amazon's best-selling list for Christian nonfiction. There wasn't a secret formula for awesomeness here. It was God working as God works, and more often than not, it is both out of our control and out of our sight, even. Have you ever thought that God is doing something through you that you will never live to see? Hmm? Have you ever thought 
that you will never hear the answer to a prayer that you've prayed your entire life, but it will come after you're gone. Have you ever had that kind of faith? God's work in the story of Elijah, and as he comes to you to speak to you this morning, asking you, what are you doing here? It's for God to dig dig deeper into your heart, into your soul, to pry open your life, that he might speak into it a message of life and maybe even a message of calling upon you, in fact. That he might gain another voice, gain another preacher, to spread the word that through the word faith might come. Like Jesus on the seashore in our gospel reading this morning, God is speaking to you whether you like it or not. I'm going to make sure they lock the door so you can't leave until after I'm done. But let me just tell you, number one, God doesn't care about your convenience. His calling upon you, his work in your life has no bearing on whether it's convenient for you, whether it fits into your life or not right now. Uh, If it's going to go the way that you want it to go or you think it should go, You look at our gospel reading, and Jesus approaches Peter at the end of his work shift. He's worked all night. He's cleaning his nets. It's time to go home, have lunch, go to bed, and get up and do it all over again. And Jesus says, I'm commandeering your boat because these people are driving me nuts. I need to push out on the shore a little bit so I can speak to them because they want to hear the word. And then he takes them out a little bit farther, and he says, yeah, those nets you were cleaning, you know, you thought you were done? Well, get them dirty. Do a little fishing. And Peter has to say, well, we already tried. I'm kind of an expert, Jesus. You're only kind of a you know, carpenter's son, and who knows whether you were even good at that. I know what I'm doing here, and, and we tried. And, but I guess since you say so, do it just so I can show you that you don't know what you're doing. And then there's that massive catch of, of fish. And all of this Jesus does for the good of the kingdom. He takes these fishermen, and he makes them into fishers of men. And because of that, you're sitting here this morning. Because of this little happening right here on the seashore. Well, Jesus is probably going to come to you. Maybe he already has. In the inconvenience of the moment, when you think you're all done, time to go home. He's going to do it in part to save you. He's going to do it in part to wash you. He's going to do it in part to call you. He's going to do it to make you his own. And it's going to be the still, small voice that whispers in your ear, I forgive you all your sins. I love you. You are mine and no one else's. And then he's going to say, oh, and by the way, go out and fish for some people. Bring some souls into the kingdom. And you're going to do it through the power of God, not yourself. Well, secondly, I say that and you might say, well, that's a nice message, Pastor, but you're the one with the degree. You're the one with the certificate from, from the church body that says you're ordained. Six years ago yesterday, by the way. Uh, besides, Pastor, I'm retired, or I'm too old, or I'm too young, or I'm too whatever. Well, remember, I have to say it again, God doesn't care about that. Remember what we heard in our epistle reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to add a little bit to it. 
For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In contrast, God is why you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God doesn't care about your competence. I know saying that to a room full of engineers probably has caused some heart palpitations. But he doesn't care about your competence. God uses who he uses for the sake of the kingdom, and he would rather use ordinary people who have been captured by Jesus who have known him as their righteousness, knowing that the only good thing in me, for instance, and I'm the pastor, is Jesus, and that's it. Just ask my wife. That God would rather use a broken, dirty, fearful sinner than anyone else because, because competence can be rewarded. Competence can earn you a medal, can get you a trophy, can get you a name on a plaque on the wall. But competence doesn't forgive sins, doesn't heal the broken soul, doesn't raise the dead. Jesus does. But pastor, we need competence and convenience to be successful. What is success, church? Is it a full bank account? Is it full pews on Sunday morning? Is it uh, uh, one million views on YouTube? By the way, hi. Um, Is that success? Or, Or is that... God, is success that in God's mercy, he redeems the world by dying on a cross and rising from the dead, that while you are still a sinner, an enemy of God, Christ died for you. That Christ comes into the world to find you in your godlessness and pride and to release you. That is success. That is his work. We often look at the world and think we need new programs to grow our church. We, we need a smarter pastor than the one speaking to you right now. God knows you do. We need a better show. We need a, a better package for Jesus to make him more attractive to the outside world. No, you get Jesus. Dying on a cross and rising from the dead to forgive you all your sins. That's all you get. If you want anywhere else, you can go down the street somewhere else. That's what you get here. Jesus, for you. I love how God gives Elijah a job in all his fears and all his complaining and all his failures at the end. He sends him to anoint a new king over the enemies of Israel. Aram was the enemy of Israel. He says, you're going to go and anoint this king. Why? So that he can come and pronounce vengeance over the people that have terrified you. Then you're going to go, go anoint a new king over Israel to have a new thing take place. And then finally, I'm sending you, Elijah, to find Elisha, a farmer, step into the inconvenience of the moment there for him. Because he's going to take over for you. You're going to appoint your successor, that you might know that the end is near, that your struggles are almost over, that the heavenly life will begin. Isn't that the message of the gospel, church? Isn't that why you're here? It should be. Uh, to, To hear of this Jesus who has vanquished your sin, death, and the devil, all the enemies that come after you. To bring you a new king, that is Jesus Christ, to do a new thing in you. And with all of that, a message to be passed on to the next generation that they might continue the work of proclaiming that the Lord 
is God. Hear that today, church. That's why you're here. Thanks be to God. Amen.